Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 65, The Beginning of the End for Nicholas II. Last episode, we had Nicholas II barely surviving the Revolution of 1905, which allowed the monarchy to turn into a constitutional one. But quickly, he came to resent the decision, and he went back on his promise to allow for real power to be given to the newly formed Duma. Now, not intent with dissolving the first two Dumas, in 1907, Nicholas unilaterally decided to change the electoral laws. He basically fixed the next election by saying whose vote counted the most and whose counted the least. The layout of who elected the representatives was as follows. The vote of one landlord was equivalent to four members of the upper bourgeoisie, 65 middle-class people, 260 peasants, or 540 workers. And they wondered why the workers made up the most radical wing of the Russian people. Of the 442 members of the Third Duma, 310 were sympathetic to the Tsar and his government. The left only had 120 seats, of which 54 were held by the moderate cadets. The social revolutionaries decided that it was useless to participate in this election. The Octoberists were now the representatives of the gentry and businessmen. While not conservative, they were certainly not left-wing. They held 150 seats during the five-year term this Duma would hold from 1907 to 1912. Now, with a more docile and controllable Duma in place, Prime Minister Pyotr Stolyepin began to exert his power. Stolyepin has been viewed simultaneously as the last steady hand guiding Russia to a man that pushed Russia to the brink of disaster. Both seem to be accurate depictions of this bright, insightful, ruthless, and energetic man. His first order of business was to stamp out the fire of revolution. He employed brutally repressive measures. Political assassinations and acts of terror had taken the lives of 1,400 people in 1906 and rose to 3,000 in 1907. Even Strelepin himself was a target when in August of 1906, his summer residence was bombed with 32 killed and many wounded, including the prime minister and members of his family. Strolyepin, with the blessing of the Tsar, put the hammer down in response, shutting down hundreds of newspapers, imprisoning many of the editors. From there, he instituted military-like court-martial trials of alleged terrorists and rebels. All this without any due process of law. Over 1,000 people were hung, which led to the saying that the people executed were dressed with Strolyepin's neckties. He created a network of informers and spies to try and infiltrate the radical groups spread throughout Russia. This proved to be a double-edged sword, though, as it caused a number of the informers to be double agents, with the most audacious being one Evno Azif. It also was to come back and harm Strelyepin himself. Azif was the chief informer on the social revolutionaries turning on many of their most powerful members to benefit his status in the party. But on the other hand, he was also the head of the group's battle organization and had a leadership role in the assassination of Minister Vyacheslav Plev in 1904. More importantly, the double-agent lists 
were to prove useful to Joseph Stalin over 30 years later in his purges. Ah, my first reference to Stalin. With all of those pacification reforms in place, as Strelepin put it, his focus now was on a positive direction, which was fundamental agricultural reform. When Alexander II freed the serfs, the issue of land was the number one topic amongst the newly created free peasant class. But as we talked about in previous podcasts, the end result was less than satisfactory. The peasants, instead of being given tracts of land to tend themselves, were put into communes that did not differentiate materially between the hard workers and the lazy people. Strelyepin sought to remedy that. He believed that through his reform, he would create a strong conservative base to counteract the radical workers and the factories. This would return a powerful majority that would return the father Tsar image to Nicholas II. How wrong and misguided he was to be. Strelyepin proposed, and had the Duma's support, a breakup of the communal system, giving a peasant stake in his land with economic support from the government. But what one major change that was put into these reforms was quite un-Russian-like, but very European. And this was the passage of the ownership of the land to the eldest member of the household, instead of passing it on to a joint and thereby splintered family ownership. One needs only to listen to my podcasts on the Kievan princes and the apanage system to understand how disastrous that old system was. And yet, that was still how things were done in Russia, aside from the post-Paul I Romanov dynasty system. Still, the agrarian reforms of Stelyepin were too little, too late, as they occurred well after opinions could be changed. The people were already sure that the Tsar was out of touch with their wants and needs and cared only for himself and his Romanov relatives. But the problems Nicholas II was to have was not just with the left. The right was totally disenchanted with his wavering, non-decisive style. The Tsar had this idealized Tsar Batushka, or Little Father Delusion. He felt that the Duma was an unnecessary intermediary between him and his people. Within his own cabinet, he was known to play one minister against the other, not truly respecting any of them. Strangely, he had no personal secretary or head assistant, and insisted on handling petty business by himself, such as responding to letters from peasants on housing problems. He was a micromanager with no managerial skills. He felt like he was still residing in the time of Alexis I, and not in a modern, complex world. At this time, Nicholas, and in particular his wife, Alexandra, came upon a scraggly, bizarre, and notorious monk named Rasputin. Grigory Rasputin was a self-styled holy man, or he believed a staretz, who supposedly could stop their son Sadevich's Alexei's hemophiliac bleeding. Now, many of you think I'm going to go into detail about the relationship between Rasputin and the Romanov family, but you would be mistaken. I feel that way too much influence has been given to this man, way beyond his true power. 
Focusing on him would take away from many more important issues that I believe caused the fall of Nicholas II and the Romanov dynasty. Still, I will give Rasputin his own episode in the future, but alas, I will only give him moderate lip service here. In my opinion, Rasputin's effect on the Russian monarchy was a negative one because of his closeness to the Tsar and his family and not his direct influence. His debauchery and scandals tainted the Tsar and his wife in the eyes of the people. Both sides, right-wing and left-wing, used his presence to fuel their opposition to Nicholas. According to the president of the Third Duma, Mikhail Rodzianko, quote, the mere fact of the close proximity to the emperor's throne of a debauched, illiterate, and immoral peasant was in itself sufficient to undermine and uproot all the respect and reverence due to the crown. With a conservative Duma in place, focus on foreign affairs began to take place. Its focus was on Serbia, which was an orthodox religious region being controlled by Austria based on the Treaty of Berlin signed in 1878. Foreign Minister A.P. Izvolsky was trying to make a deal with Austria to allow the Russian Navy to use the Dardanelles in return for allowing Austria to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina. Meeting with diplomats from around Europe in London, Izvolsky failed miserably. Not only did Austria turn down the Russian minister's offer, they demanded that the Serbians fully capitulate to them, something that humiliated Russia. It was dubbed in the press as a diplomatic Tsushima. The council of ministers led by Stroljapin were stunned, not by the outcome, which they all knew would happen, by the fact that they were not informed about Izvolsky's dealings. This was yet another example of Nicholas II's practice of having one minister competing with another to keep them all weak. The tensions within the Russian government as well as throughout all of Europe continued to climb over the Balkan situation. The carefully constructed ties between Germany and Russia, put together by Otto von Bismarck in the 1870s, were in tatters. Bismarck knew that a two-front war with the Russians on his eastern border was highly dangerous. Continuing the breakdown was the treaties with France and later with Great Britain, both of whom were uneasy partners with Russia, but greater enemies of Austria and Germany. It must have seemed odd to the rest of the world that the Russian Tsar, who was far more German in blood than Russian, would become an enemy of his true homeland. But in reality, he had little choice, as Russia couldn't turn its back on its Serbian brethren and hoped to be viewed positively in world opinion. Russia was backed into a situation which many knew would lead to a world war. Strelepin was rightfully fearful, as he knew that Russia was both economically and militarily incapable of successfully going to war. He also knew and confided to friends that such a war would cost the Romanov dynasty their hold on power. On September 14, 1911, Pyotr Strelepin attended a performance of Rimsky-Korsakov's opera, The Tale of Tsar Saltan, in Kiev with Tsar Nicholas II and two of his daughters in attendance. 
There were numerous warnings that an assassination plot had been uncovered, aimed at Stryapin. The voice of reason minister refused to be cowered by it and would not even wear a bulletproof vest. During the performance, Dmitry Bogrov shot Stolyepin twice, once in the arm and once in the chest. It took four days, but eventually Stolyepin died. An inquiry into the assassination was quickly begun, but was halted by order of Tsar Nicholas. Why, may you ask? Turns out that Bogrov, who was born Mordecai Griskovich, was not only a leftist radical, but also an informer of the Okhrana, the Tsar's secret police. Because of this, there was much speculation that Stulepin was murdered not because of Bogrov's leftist leanings, but because of conservative elements within the government who opposed Stulepin's policy against going to war. He was even accused of being a spy for Germany once because of his birthplace, Dresden. Whatever the case, the last sane voice in the government was gone, which led to the drums of war being beaten louder and louder. The people were being inundated with pro-Slavic, orthodox religious propaganda. The anti-Austrian and Turkish messages showed the suffering that the Serbians were going through at the hands of their enemies. Rasputin, whose influence at the court of the Tsar was also very pro-war, had a number of government officials fired who were not of the same opinion. The stage was set for war, so all that was needed was a spark to light the fuse that would bring all the world's antagonists to the brink of war. The spark, as you all may well know, was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria by Gavrila Princip, a Bosnian Serb student, on June 28, 1914. Accusations of complicity by the Serbian government were thrown about with little real evidence. The Austrians then threw down an ultimatum to the Serb government with the following ten demands that Serbia had to agree to in order to avoid war. Number one, suppress all publications which incite hatred and contempt of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy and are directed against its territorial integrity. Two, dissolve the Serbian nationalist organization Narodna Obrana, or the People's Defense, and all other such societies in Serbia. Three, eliminate without delay from school books and public documents all propaganda against Austria-Hungary. Four, remove from the Serbian military and civil administration all officers and functionaries whose names the Austro-Hungarian government will provide. Number five, accept in Serbia representatives of the Austro-Hungarian government for the suppression of subversive movements. Number six, Bring to trial all accessories to the Archduke's assassination and allow Austro-Hungarian delegates to take part in the investigations. Number seven, arrest Major Vosha Dankosik and civil servant Milan Siganovic, as they were named as participants in the assassination plot. Number eight, cease the cooperation of the Serbian authorities in traffic in arms and explosives across the frontier. Dismiss and punish the officials of the Shabbat's Lozinka Frontier Service, who are guilty of having assisted the perpetrators of the Sarajevo crime. Number nine, 
provide explanations to the Austro-Hungarian government regarding Serbian officials who have expressed themselves in interviews in terms of hostility to the Austro-Hungarian government. And number 10, notify the Austro-Hungarian government without delay of the execution of the measures comprised in the ultimatum. Serbia only could agree to eight of the provisions, which led Austria-Hungary to declare war. On July 28, 1914, the conflict began with the invasion of Serbia by Austria, followed by the German invasion of Belgium, Luxembourg, and France, and a Russian attack against Germany. The war was on. Join me next time as we step back a few years and follow the celebrations of important events in Russian history, which led to the positive feelings of patriotism that was sweeping Russia before the start of the hostilities. Then we will cover the early part of the war all the way up to the overthrow of the Romanov dynasty on March 15, 1917. And now for a reading from Russian history. And this was from a Peter Dronova, and he was a government uh, official. He was in the uh, interior ministry and was the minister of the interior at one time. And in 1914, he warned Nicholas about a war with Germany. And when you hear this, you almost think that he was looking into a crystal ball, as they say, looking into the future. Quote, but in the event of defeat, social revolution in its most extreme form is inevitable. The trouble will start with the blaming of the government for all disasters. In the legislative institutions, a bitter campaign against the government will begin, followed by revolutionary agitations throughout the country with socialist slogans capable of arousing and rallying the masses, beginning with a division of land and succeeded by a division of all valuables and property. The defeated army, having lost its most dependable men and carried away by the primitive peasant desire for land, will find itself too demoralized to serve as a bulwark of law and order. The legislative institutions and the intellectual opposition parties, lacking real authority in the eyes of the people, will be powerless to stem the popular tide aroused by themselves, and Russia will be flung into hopeless anarchy, the issue of which cannot be foreseen. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'm going to ask a favor, as I sometimes do. Please go to iTunes and give me a favorable rating. If you like what you hear, as it will kind of help me move up the podcast rankings. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, which has become quite the lively place where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. Now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.